This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. I am bleeding excited about this, but that kind of tells you how sad I really am. Well, we know you're a reality TV fan. We know Junkie. you enjoy the Kardashians, Below yes. Deck, all yes. of them, really, mm. don't you? What about Love is Blind? How does that rate on your sort of scale of <laughs> what reality I say, TV shows? I'm looking for someone to help me out on this. I've I, actually watched this. I, I've watched it. I actually think Married at First Sight is the kind of better version, if you will, oh, come of on. the two. Okay. For people that are not familiar, the idea of Love is Blind is that you've got your single candidates. 12 blokes, to is it 12 or 10? 10 blokes staying in like this big dormitory. In pods. And then 10 women. Yeah. And they go in and they speak throughout the day, but they can't see each other. So they're getting to know one another. One's in one room, the other's in another room. They've got a big wall between them and they're just conversing. And then you have the ultimate sort of backstabbing betrayals and all that sort of stuff yeah, of where, where, you know, they, they pledge to one and then they end up going with the other. And then it follows it all along to ultimately whether they decide do they want to get married or not. I mean, how much time do they have to decide if they want to get married to somebody they've never seen? So they'll have all of these conversations. How long do they no, last? No, no, what happens is so, so they, they, they essentially propose in the pods. Yes. And then they go out into the real world <laughs> And then they kind of meet each other's families. Hilarity ensues. And then basically what happens is half of them end up getting married and half of them end up basically blinking at the altar. Yeah. And my favourite scene, because Tanya loved it. And you my did fa- too. My favourite scene, I think it was Lockdown, the first edition, and I did get sucked into it, I have to admit. Uh, my favourite scene was this bloke in a thick kind of woolen suit <laughs> on a warm Floridian summer's day. <laughs> uh, wanting, his eyes just screamed, I want out. <laughs> And, uh, you know, he was basically, he just he just couldn't. He didn't have the gumption to say no on the wedding day. So he said yes. And he was sweating <laughs> profusely. I've never seen, imagine Rafael Nadal in the fifth set of an Australian Open <laughs> final where, where literally the sweat is dripping off it's his like, nose. It's like yeah. a tap that's been left half-turned of water. This guy was essentially. Zinedine Zidane. This guy had a drip. He had a drip of sweat from his nose. His shirt was stuck to his torso. And he went through with it and he kind of, it was the most in, unconvincing ado uh, <laughs> that I've ever seen in my life. It was Bill hilarious. Clinton, apparently, is yeah. who that man was. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed I do. I do. <laughs> do you take this woman to be your lawful wedded wife? I do. And then he just hated it though. That, that's my enduring memory of the show. I mean, how many of those people end up staying together? This is Great such question. a horrible experiment that's just messing with people's lives for for viewers. The, 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 the best of it as well is, obviously, as Robbie says, they'll have a few connections, but they'll yeah. accept the proposal, but they've never seen who the person is. So once they clap eyes on them, we've seen cases where both men and the females actually like the other one <gasps> once they've clapped eyes. But of course, they're already proposed at this point. That other one's already proposed himself. So you get this kind of like <laughs> wanting to, I want to ditch you and actually go for the, the other original. one. And it's, oh. Oh, it's, it is actually good well, TV. Well, the reason we're talking about it is supposedly it is coming to the UAE. It's going to be called Love is Blind Habibi. (laughs) I love it. I'd love to have been in that meeting room. How can we localise it? What can we give a little little bit of a a Middle Eastern flavour? Just chuck Habibi at the end. Exactly. Love is Blind Habibi. (laughs) As if to make it, it's more persuasive if if you say Habibi at the end. I'm in. I am all over this. Also, is there a comma after Love is Blind? Yeah, love is blind, comma. Habibi. Habibi. <laughs> That's amazing. Coming to it's, Netflix, apparently. Yeah, coming to Netflix. We don't know exactly when. They haven't announced the release date for it yet, but it's going to be hosted by a Saudi actress and TV personality by the name of Elham Ali, along with her husband, Khalid Sakar. So I, think I guess, it would have been better I guess if, we'll see. If they'd, been put, if they'd put love is blind, inshallah. Yes. Ah, I, I think... Netflix needs you on the team. No, it would, no because... That, that's 50 50, isn't it? Of course yeah. it is, yeah. Whether it happens or not. That's it. It would have been much better. <laughs> Just doesn't quite have the same ring to it. Love is blind, inshallah. Love is blind, Habibi. That is going to get me clicking on that. <laughs> With the subtitles, I'll be sucked in. Uh. Okay, so that's... Uh, when is it premiering, sorry? Well, we don't know. They haven't announced the dates yet, but I just thought Chris would be very excited to know that that's coming. And, of All course, right. it's joining a long list of Dubai-based reality TV shows. Indeed. So make what you will of it. You I know, know the, the global kind the, of... It's becoming the epicentre. It is for reality TV shows. I know there's yeah. like a property, realtor-based one. Is there? Of course, you've got Real Housewives of Dubai. You have Dubai Bling. You yeah, know? you've got a lot. quite Netflix. a few. 
Netflix is coming to this part of the world, Rob. Yeah, no, it certainly is. Dubai, a growing international fascination with this city. There's no doubt about this. Time for this. Off scripts, fact or fiction. Okay, we've got a couple of. I've, I've sort of spread the uh, the kind of fact or fiction stories out quite thin to try and fool you um, in the most effective way possible because I, I made it far too obvious last week. Yeah, you did. And I it's hope that this week is going to stump you. A little recap for those that did miss this last week. Essentially, Rob had come up with two facts, one fiction. And both facts were mental, yeah. as they always are. They were. Then he gets to his fiction one that he's made up. <laughs> he's really proud of himself, thinks he's been really clever. And within the first sentence, Chris has caught him out on some yeah. niche 80s movies <laughs> featuring like Sly Stallone that or something. first sentence was... The first sentence was, father looks to win his strange son's affection by winning arm wrestling, arm wrestling competition. Immediately, uh, that's over the top. Over slice alone plays a trucker trying to win the affections of his son back. back. Yeah, well, you there the are winning. no sliced alone films in this week's edition no of Fact or Fiction. All but right. I'm going to ask you, I've got three ads from oh. way back when. And I'm going to ask you which one of them was bogus. Okay. okay. We're going to go to 1953, and uh, this is an advert for a constipation remedy. You're not going to believe this, but it's called poop juice. <laughs> now, it uses the alluring strap line, let the good times flow. This is fact. Uh, holding a glass full of like a Coca-Cola-coloured oh. liquid and wearing a big smile is a nurse who stands in front of a container bearing the brand's aforementioned logo. Uh, And beneath the headline reads the following text. Constipated? If you just can't go because you're all clogged up, try this remedy. (laughs) A glass of just 500 millilitres and you'll be hot to trot for the toilet in no time. (laughs) NB, some patients reported a rancid aftertaste and dull stomach pains after use. That's fact. I'm going fact. 1953, let the good time flow. That's <laughs> fact. <laughs> okay, all right. We've got for two facts there. Um, right, we head now to 1969 and a beauty treatment called How to Use Your Hands to Save Your Face. Okay, the ad says, Our revolutionary faceometrics course is the uniquely exciting facial smoothing plan you've heard about. The five-minute-a-day technique for firming face and neck, reducing and eradicating facial lines, boasts the ad. Use your own hands, emphasises the small print, and you actually see your face unline grow smoother and prettier from the very first lesson. In our complimentary book, you'll learn about simple stroking movements that attack lines around nose, eyes, neck and mouth that firm up both eye and jawline. Wipe away years of wrinkles in just a few weeks and save your face with faceometrics. I think that's true as well. I know. So how, is this two facts, one f- fiction? Is that it what is. It, okay? It is. Can we hear, yeah. hear the third one before? Well, we here's decide? the third one. This is from face from saving your face to saving your skin. We go to 1951 and we unveil the A bomb survival jacket. Okay, you're a walking ER essentially when you don a jacket that resembles. Quite a standard life jacket, but with more pockets and pouches to house all sorts of impressive paraphernalia. Um, Be a grown-up, don't get blown up, shouts the ad beneath a picture of the jacket and an array of added extras carefully laid out on either side of it. Now, the jacket comes equipped with scissors, rope, shoelaces, flashlight, matches, aspirin, safety pins, bandages, burn salve, and perhaps most importantly, blood coagulant. Designers of the jacket admitted that it wasn't a protection against radiation or any other atomic bomb effects, but they went on to stress it carries many articles and aids that may be needed by survivors. So basically, all you've got to do is survive the initial blast and the jacket has got you covered from there. You know what? I'm going to say be a grown up, don't get blown up is a Robbie Greenfield original. That strikes me as something he would, you know, kind of go silent for about 10 minutes and then suddenly it would just pop into his head. Yeah. How to use your hands to save your face. I'm pretty sure that's locked in fact. It's whether the PJ 
slash let the good times flow. That could be Robbie. <laughs> that, that could have been an hour or two of Robbie this afternoon. The, the, you know what? Um, and I'm, I've got the script open in front of me, Rob. The thing that leaves a little crumb, a little trail of crumbs that makes me think this could be fiction is that paraphernalia is spelt wrong. So Robbie hasn't copy and pasted this one from a website. <laughs> He's written this himself. So I'm going to say A-bomb survival um, jacket. <laughs> what are you saying about my spelling? That, that's maybe a greenfieldism. You've made a mistake there. So I'm going to say that the let the good times flow is fact. The help, help your face with your hands is fact. An A-bomb survival jacket is a Robbie Greenfield construct. Yeah, I'm going with exactly the same prediction. The answer is you're sort of half wrong and half right. <laughs> uh, Sonal is absolutely on the money by saying that be a grown-up, don't get blown up was something that I concocted. <laughs> well done. I completely made that up. It's just, but it's got real Robbie Greenfield kind of slogan. Yeah. The, the A-bomb survival jacket was a thing. Ah. Uh, as was the uh, um, face-o-metrics, um, use your hands to cure your face kind of ad from 1963 or whatever it was. Uh, the one that was uh, completely bogus, and it was actually a doctored, it appeared actually, went viral recently. It was an old Coca-Cola advert that was doctored, and it was actually a nurse holding up two nice glasses of Coca-Cola, um, and someone decided to replace that oh. with a constipation remedy. You and, really got us with oh, that. Oh, the hilarity. Um, it's actually the slogan, quality you can trust as opposed to whatever I said, let the good times flow. I thought which that was, was genius. Which was, uh, which was, I didn't, that wasn't me, me making that up. That was actually something on the doctored ad. Okay. So that is this week's fiction. However, I did doctor the other stories <laughs> so, to make them. So they were all kind of fact and kind of fiction. The middle one was was fact. Okay. That was that was the other, the other one had just a little a little sprinkle of fiction in there. But here's one. Here's a bonus round. It's called Did Einstein Say It? Okay. Okay. Thanks to the internet, Albert Einstein, the renowned physicist, originator of the theory of relativity, is famous for saying things he did not, in fact, ever say. Okay. Now, the following three quotes, one of these he did say, two of them he didn't. You have to... One fact, two fiction. Yeah. Okay, ready? Yep. Quote number one. The world will not be destroyed by those who do evil but by those who watch them without doing anything. Mm. Okay, that's quote number one. Quote number two. Everyone is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing that it is stupid. Oh. That's number two. And finally, number three. When you sit with a nice girl for two hours, you think it's only a minute. But when you sit on a hot stove for a minute, you think it's two hours. That's relativity. Some of these are Mark Twain, aren't they? (laughs) (laughs) That second one sounds a bit Confucius, if you ask me. Which one do you think he actually said? You know, I've jumped around to each of them at one point or another, and then I thought, well, the hot stove, the time relativity doesn't sound like space-time in an explanation of that. It also doesn't doesn't sound like the kind of thing a physicist would say, does it? Uh, I mean, you never know. People can have a colloquial way about them, even if they're... uh, But I've kind of gone on all of them. I think I'm actually going to go with the first one. You think that's the real one? Yeah. You flip-flopped. I have all three. I've picked all three in the span of five minutes. Yeah, so I'm going to finally stick with number one. That's the, the kind of, uh, I think, the, the one that kind of strikes me the most, if I'm honest. It seems the, the, the best kind of constructed. However, I'm going to say that Einstein was losing his marbles a little bit at this point. I'm going to go for number two. Everyone is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing that it is stupid. Well, I can tell you the answer. The, what, the quote that he did say is number one. Numerous sources attribute the quote to him verbatim. The other two appear on a website, things that Einstein didn't say, dot <laughs> uh, com. You know, what's and weird is that fish one was so familiar. I've definitely seen it somewhere before. I'm sure he said something similar in Oppenheimer to, to Robert Oppenheimer. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. That, that movie, which is based on real life. <laughs> yeah. Facts. But it is. It I is know. so based on real life. Of course fact. it is. But yeah. obviously there's creative license. So. Mm. But, you know, it's a good lead, nonetheless. (laughs) The Off Script Podcast. (laughs) How they made it on Off Script. Charting the life journeys of the most successful people on the planet. (laughs) (laughs) 
Now, this one should come with a small warning that we are going to play, uh, play a highly annoying clip in about 15 <laughs> seconds' time. Yeah, so if you cannot take this song, I wish I could avoid it. I wish I could not hear this song, but unfortunately I can't. So we are talking about Peter Benchley today. Now, if you're not familiar with the name, he is the author behind Jaws, which was a novel before it was the hit movie. And there's an inspiration really to this story and why we wanted to talk sharks. We didn't need four baby sharks there, so two would have sufficed. You're the one one that called for that, first of all. I I held back. I thought we don't need to do that. But as you pointed out, it is the most applicable song to this story. Because the reason we're talking about this is the world's first photo of a newborn great white shark has been released. It is the first ever photo that we've ever seen of this. In fact, scientists have seen older infant sharks. They've also seen baby great whites inside pregnant mothers that have passed on, that have died. But this is the first time that a living newborn has been seen in the wild. And it just kind of boggles the mind with all of the observation of the natural world that we've managed to capture. That this is something that's never seen before? Yeah. Um, They've never, obviously it goes without saying, that there's never been any footage of a great white shark giving birth. Mm. And the guy that actually shot this footage is someone we've had on the show, on Off Script, Carlos Guana, who is the Malibu artist. He has a drone and he lives in Southern California. And he basically has become an absolute incredible addition to the uh, scientific research teams, certainly the marine teams, who scientists who, who research marine life in the ecosystem over there in the Pacific Ocean, just off the coast of Southern California, because he's documented and he's captured so much incredible. I have to, I, you should definitely follow this guy on YouTube. He's called the Malibu Artist. He's got drone footage of massive great white sharks swimming right. underneath paddle borders and surfboards. Yeah. Uh, he's got footage of all sorts of marine life from dolphins to rays to whales, loads of shark interactions with swimmers and surfers and paddleboarders. And now he's, he's got the Holy Grail. In fact, I think he told us the real Holy Grail when we had him on the show was to get a, a, a to, to photograph or to film a shark giving birth. And this is the next best thing. It's the first ever baby great white. Yeah, and it was five feet long, pure white, they said. It's <laughs> already a baby, is it? Five feet long. Five feet long. And they think it was probably only born sort of a couple hours before. That's amazing. They said it was shedding an embryonic layer, is the theory, as it was swimming for its first few hours. Um, and it looks quite cute, doesn't it? Yeah. Does it? It sort of does. No, it does not. I've seen the picture, Cute compared to what what it later becomes, Mm. which is anything but cute, really. Regal, majestic. Regal and majestic, for sure. But, um, yeah, they are. I mean, you couldn't even make them up, sharks, could you? There's, there's, uh, I think Joe Rogan it was who said that they're, they're cartoonish. Yeah. In their, so in, in, their mouths are enormous. They've got rows of unbelievably <laughs> jagged teeth. I mean, yeah. they are real life monsters. Yeah, it feels like they should be fictional for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. So we thought this was another reason to just bring you some shark content. And of course, Jaws, it turns out, turns 50 years old this year. Now, The Telegraph did a really excellent biography sort of piece on Peter Bradford Benchley, who is the person who wrote Jaws, the actual novel that inspired the film. He was born May 8th, 1940, and he had quite an interesting life. Now, he had literary roots to start with, it's fair to say. He was the son of a novelist by the name of Nathaniel Benchley. He was the grandson of Robert Benchley, who was a drama editor for The New Yorker and Life magazine as well. Really acclaimed. He was. He was set up for this, let's be honest. He even wrote his first book, which was Time and a Ticket, which was a travel memoir, after he graduated from Phillips Exeter Academy and then Harvard University. (laughs) So he goes off on this trip and writes a little memoir about it, which was actually published. So it's fair to say, you know, he's had a a lot of opportunity in life at at a young age, you know, um, having having parents who were writers and, and grandparents even who were writers. He cuts his chops, though, working as a freelance journalist at The Washington Post. He was doing, you know, obituaries, a couple news articles, moves on to Newsweek. But, you know, even in a charmed life like his, he faced some rejection. He says his biggest disappointment was that The New Yorker rejected 50 of his 52 oh, submissions. Ouch. Tell you what, if even two of my submissions would get into the New Yorker, I would be thrilled. Yeah, that's you know? true. It shows yeah. persistence yeah. to submit 52. 
Yeah, yeah. No, but the fact that you've been published twice by <laughs> yeah, the New Yorker says a lot. Maybe more so now than it did back in the day when your grandfather perhaps was writing for them frequently. But, right. But um, anyways, that was something that he considered quite a disappointment. Anyways, back in 1964, he reads a local news story. I think we might have heard this um, before about a fisherman who catches a 4,500-pound great white shark just off of Long Island. Now, this is one of those stories, you know, sometimes you see something, it just kind of resonates with you, and you just keep coming back to it. And that's exactly what happened with him for years. He just kind of had this idea, and he tucked it away in his mind. He was just kind of slowly chewing on it, and he thought, you know, everyone in the world is fascinated with either sharks or dinosaurs. And, of course, humans love our monsters. Slowly Mm. chewing on it. I enjoyed that, sons. Yeah. Very good. Was, exactly. that a, was that a 20-footer? 25. <laughs> <laughs> 25. Three tons of him. Yeah, man. That's what <laughs> he says, isn't it? 20 tons. <laughs> but nothing happens with this idea right away. Yeah. It takes years, actually, before he actually starts to make something of it. First, he ends up, believe it or not, in the White House. He had been doing some writing for television. He's done so much, really. Then from 1967 until 1969, he was employed as a speechwriter for President Lyndon Johnson. Oh, sure. He says, I was a low-level aide, but it was a chance to see inside of the White House. And he describes why he thinks he was hired. Apparently, I was hired, and I'll give you the circumstances, that because there was a suspicion on the part of either the president or Robert Kintner, who hired me, that my father was the editor of The New Yorker. And I discovered this only because many years later, well, not too many years later, under the Ford administration, my father received an invitation to dinner at the White House uh, addressed to Nathaniel Benchley, editor, The New Yorker magazine, which he received with great delight since he had never been editor of The New Yorker, nor had his father, although he wrote for The New Yorker, both of them did. And... It then dawned on me, since I couldn't possibly figure why else I'd ever been hired to do a job for which I was so incredibly inept or unqualified, that, um, that that's why. And he goes on to explain in language that I couldn't continue with from him directly that basically President Lyndon Johnson was apparently a bit obsessed with currying favor with this kind of liberal elite that he was a bit of an outsider from. And so the New Yorker and being in with the New Yorker was seen as a way to do that. So he claims, can't tell if he's just being a bit self-deprecating there or if there is actually something to that, that the reason he's in is because somebody misunderstood who his father was. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Um, You know, he did he did go on to write something back in 1986, uh, like a comic satirical novel called Q Clearance about an anxious presidential speechwriter who unwittingly becomes the target of Soviet spies. So it sounds like he was able to use his experience in the White House to just get some color and get some little anecdotes as well. So, so a million miles away from Jaws, though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Can you imagine hanging Speech out, writing. writing speeches for the president and then going on to write Jaws? <laughs> now, he had read that story years before about an, a real story about a shark that was caught off uh, the coast. And he eventually is starting to talk with different publishers because he is a writer, of course. And one day he's invited out to lunch by an editor at Doubleday, Tom Congdon. They chat about a nonfiction idea around pirates, but then Tom asks if Peter has any ideas for a novel and he says, hmm, fancy, funny you should say that. I've been running this idea for years about a monster shark, basically, attacking people off the coast of, you know, New England. And he himself had spent many hours as a child fishing off Nantucket with his father. He knew of sharks. He thought he knew how to tell this story. And he'd been intrigued about sharks from a young age. Um, So they go ahead. Tom agrees. And he bought the rights for $1,000. Now, you know, $1,000 is a good sum of money, right? But I think we can take it for granted in today's day and age. Back then, bearing in mind as a freelance writer, he just had about $600 in his bank account. Um, his wife was a waiter and a waitress, I should say, and he had three young children as well, which is $600 to his name. For that $1,000 really meant something. It also put the pressure on to make sure he delivered those early you know, chapters. So he tucked himself away in some you know, interesting places. He rented a room over a furnace supply company. Uh, he also spent some time writing in a converted turkey coop. So, you know, different wow. kind of settings that might inspire a writer, it's fair to say. And he had such a visceral way in the book of describing the monster's attacks that you take for granted because most of us have only seen the movie. I've read the book. 
Oh, Actually have you? Yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know book. anybody that's read the book. I know, no, I, 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 yeah, I, I did when I was a kid. Read oh, it before so. you saw the movie, or, or I... no? I'm sure I saw the movie first. Which was more frightening? Um, you know, it's been so long since I read the book. Yeah. But I remember it being a really good book. Like a really well-written book. Well, I can imagine you'd enjoy it because you look at his his ways of writing and his visceral descriptions. In one case, he describes the shark crushing bones and flesh and organs into a jelly. With the woman's body in its mouth, the shark smashed down on the water with a thunderous splash spewing foam and blood and phosphorescence in a gaudy shower. Ooh. I mean, you know, definitely a yeah, way, way with words. words. Yeah, wrong. Um, got an image for sure. He also got the first take when it came down to this going up for a movie. He got the first take on writing the movie screenplay, but this is why. Jaws was the first screenplay I'd ever written. Uh, I would never have been allowed to write it if there had not been a threat of a Writers Guild strike mm-hmm. in, in the States. Uh, and they knew that with me they could at least get a first draft because... I wasn't a member of the Guild because I'd never written a screenplay. Steven Spielberg and I argued a couple of times about the specific changes, about what, what exactly what he wanted to do, but I had no problem about the change. He sounds a bit like Christopher Walken. A little bit, mm, bit easily. Doesn't he? I could see that, yeah. I didn't pick up on it right away, but now that you say it, I can definitely hear that. It definitely was testy between him and Steven Spielberg. I mean, there are enough reports of that. And, of course, he alludes to it, but perhaps just kind of waters that down a little bit. Well, let's talk about some of those changes between the book and the film, which came out just a year after the book came out. The book was a massive success in its own right first. Just a year. Just a year. Um, now, police chief Martin Brody and his wife Ellen. And now they're quite sort of loved up, aren't they, in the movie? They're quite yeah, they caring, considerate of, e- of each other. But in the novel, they're a bickering couple. Not just that. When it comes to the marine biologist Matt Hooper, played by Richard Dreyfus, and in fact, here he is with Chief Brody, trying to raise the alarm of the threat of the shark. And any shark expert in the world will tell you it's a killer. It's a man-eater. Look, the situation is that apparently a great white shark has staked a claim in the waters off Amity Island. And he is going to continue to feed here as long as there is food in the water. And there's no limit to what he's going to do. I mean, we've already had three incidents. Two people killed inside of a week, and it's going to happen again. It happened before. The Jersey Beach. 1916, there were five five people people chewed up in the surf. In one week. Tell them about the swimmers. Now, when it comes to that biologist, Matt Hooper, in the film, he's a bit of a lovable character. He's a bit of a hero, a little bit nerdy, right? Yeah. It turns out in the book, Ellen, the wife of Chief Brody, actually has an affair with him. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so there's a bit of marital strife going on. You know, and in fact, the character of the biologist was tanned, egotistical, and swaggering. It's quite different from how he's portrayed in Uh, the movie. And I'm glad, I mean, Spielberg obviously had no interest in that kind of subplot. Yeah. And and it doesn't need need to be there. He didn't deal with the... No. He didn't need the grittiness of the marital drama. Spielberg didn't really, at that stage of his career, he wasn't... Preoccupied with affairs of the heart. (laughs) You know, it was more about the monster shark for Stephen. Yeah, Mayor Larry Vaughn, who's the man who keeps the beaches open for tourists despite the evidence of the massive shark that was eating people up. I'm pleased and happy to repeat the news that we have, in fact, caught and killed a large predator that supposedly injured some bathers. But as you see, it's a beautiful day, the beaches are open, and people are having a wonderful time. Amity, as you know, means friendship. Now, in the book, the reason he keeps the beaches open was because he and his mob bosses had some shares in seafront rental houses. This is the godfather of the fish edition. (laughs) Yeah, so it was more nefarious than him simply just want to keep things going for the tourists. He had his own personal interests and heart, and he had connections to the mafia. Uh, Fair to say, I'm glad that Spielberg streamlined the movie. I'm not quite sure I was ready for mafioso (laughs) and marital strife. Just stick to the sharks. (laughs) Can you imagine, though, if he'd kept some of those factors in? It would have been a totally different movie. It puts sleeping with the fishes in a whole new perspective, doesn't it? (laughs) It does, yeah. He almost didn't get the film. He was 26 years old at the time. We know it was one of his earliest films. I think his second major sort of film. And he was told by the producers that somebody else had been their first choice as director. But that first choice, Dick Richards, had annoyed Peter Benchley by constantly referring to the great white shark as the white whale. Okay. That's Jonah, of course. <laughs> it just kind of turned him well, Moby off. Dick. That's yeah, Moby Dick. Exactly. Moby Dick. Yeah. And so because of that, because he kept saying the white whale and not sort of giving correct sort of respect to the character of the great white shark um Benchley was just not having him he was not agreeing to this first director and that's how Spielberg got it it's just because that first director was just a bit aloof a bit cocky about the whole thing wow yeah um such a good film it is is a fantastic film it's great even though the, the shark is clearly a mechanical model 
it's still brilliant. Even viewing it, I could watch it again. You know, because it, it is at the end of the day, it's a drama it's as well. Yeah, no, it, it's a it's a it's a human drama more than just the fear of the shark. Yeah, I mean, and there's so many different elements. Obviously, the cinematography, the sort of hidden nature of the shark, the animatronics over CGI, which we've all discussed, actually were so much better. Another part, though, that is intrinsically linked to the story and how good it is, is the soundtrack. And Spielberg talks about the first time the legendary composer John Williams actually played it for him. When he finally played the music for me on the piano, he previewed the main Jaws theme. I expected to hear something kind of weird and melodic, you know, and tonal but eerie and of another world, almost a bit like outer space, inside, you know, inner space under, under the water. And, and what he played me instead with two fingers on the lower keys was And at first I began to laugh. I thought he was, he had a great sense of humor. I thought he was putting me on. And he said, no, that's the theme that draws. And I said, play it again. He played it again and he played it again. And it suddenly seemed right. And John found a signature for the entire movie. So I mean, it may just be the best film score ever. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine hearing that for the first time and thinking it was a joke because of its simplicity. But that's what makes it so brilliant. Have we done that? I know we've done an awful lot in five years. Have we the, done uh, the, the Mount Rushmore scores. of film scores? We yes. need to. That's a good thought. We, we need to. absolutely need to do that. Get the listeners involved. It's going to be top 10 movie scores of all time. Mm. I mean, Jaws. John would Williams be, would have most of them, I think, but probably would. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Yeah, so Park. what? You know, we do it on merit. If he's got the top four, he's got the top four. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's I'm living on a fire right. potential. That Rog, there you are. To stick that in your file drawer or whatever. You do. <laughs> <laughs> now, just really quickly before we wrap this one up, it was Jaws the the book itself was a massive success. It was an instant hit. It sold 5.5 million copies just in America alone, and of course, uh, ended up selling more than 20. Million copies um, over time, and uh, of course, Jaws. When the movie came out, was once again a runaway hit, as we know, a massive blockbuster, and it really surprised Peter the success of this story. When I wrote the book, I knew that it couldn't be a success because it was a first novel, and nobody reads first novels. And it was a first novel about a fish, so who cared? I knew they couldn't make a movie out of it because, first of all, you couldn't catch and train a great white shark. Second of all, the technology wasn't good enough to build one that was realistic, so I was wrong on all counts. He was actually, he didn't allow his children to see the film with its scary primal score from John Williams because they enjoyed the water too much. He didn't want to scare them out of it. Fair enough. Yeah. He he was content with scaring everyone else out of the water instead. And on that note, he felt quite guilty about that. Obviously, both him and Steven Spielberg have expressed the fact that they regret the impact of Jaws on the shark population and the way that people think about sharks because of the film. And uh, he did become active in the marine conservation world. He was campaigning about the threat of hunters to the shark population. Um, So he said many times that, you know, it's just fiction you know, didn't mean for this this impact basically to happen. Yeah. The thing is, it does still happen. It so does. it's kind of, it's amazing, isn't it? Because at the same time, you, you have to think they're an animal. It's their domain, not ours. But yeah. then, you know, it's so visceral. A shark yeah. attack is so, it's, it's I mean. Mixed news. It, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's easily the most visceral thing that an animal does to a human being, I think. Yeah. More so than any land predator. Lion. No, but come on, being attacked by a shark, there's something about that from the underneath, from, you know. Can I just say, I do not want to be attacked by a tiger, a lion, a shark, or a bear. That's another Mount Rushmore movie for off script (laughs) on a future edition. Pretty sure we've done that one before. (laughs) Okay. The Off Script Podcast. No mystery, just history on Off Script. Right. That's excellent. So good. <laughs> very good, Rog. I think that's one of your best ever. That's quite a good one, isn't it? Yeah, very Short good. Short but sweet. Very, very good. You know, our boss actually said to us that she thinks we're more excited about Roger's sweepers than we are about the we rest are. of the show. We are. actual features. <laughs> Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. The, sweet, the sweeper is like the high point of the feature and it all just yeah, slithers exactly. downhill from there. Um, so basically, what's this feature? This is anything we come across that's quirky, that is in history. That happened at where, one where, point in time. Yeah, I mean, where, <laughs> does, where does history even start? For example, like, I wouldn't think that 2008 is history. It's too recent. No, yeah, but it's you're happened. Right. You I know? know, but it's technically it is. But for me, it's got to be pre-1960. 
Okay. Yeah, yeah, all right. yeah, so there's some sort of arbitrary sort of timeline that we all have in our mind that's subjective that we may or may not deem history, and that's how this feature will be run. That's yeah. exactly yeah. it. Depending and, on and who's doing it on the day. In edition one, we are looking at breakup letters from history. And I'm going to ask you guys uh, a nice cheery question. Can you remember your best and worst breakup conversations? <laughs> you don't need to detail what, what they were or what they entailed, yeah, but can course. you remember them? They're like seared in your memory. Right. Yeah. I've, I've got one because I, I mean, Ooh. Laura and I have been together for donkey's years. I was going to even maybe. ask if you had one before. Yeah, Rog, yeah, have you gone just, through life without a single breakup conversation? No, I, I've, I had the one, but I was so young, it was just the old. <laughs> it's like you were nine. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I don't want to see you anymore. Okay. <laughs> no, it was a, it were, I think I'd have been about 16, 17, and it was um mm. uh, it's not you, it's me, but can I have my can I have that t-shirt that I gave you back? Oh. Yeah, wow. Bit, bit so you have I didn't you, get the t-shirt. You have back. largely gone through life. So you broke up with her and asked for the yeah. t-shirt back. Yeah. And I was driving her home. <laughs> oh, oh, I must you, have been 17. You'd yeah. fit in well with this lot. <laughs> in, in our in our in a lineup of incredibly what scathing. Was, what was the t-shirt? It was um, it was uh, the the rugby club I played for used to dish out T-shirts at the start of the year, yeah, so it okay. had the badge on, oh, it had okay. my initials on. I, I needed it back because I would have been fined if I didn't turn up with it, mm. and she didn't give me it back. So I, I paid a pound every week. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! Somehow you deserve that, Rod. Yeah, heartless. I, did, I deserve right. everything I get. Well, these are a little bit more eloquent <laughs> than "Can I have my T-shirt back?" <laughs> these are some of the best breakup letters from history because. You know, luckily and mercifully, most breakup conversations are not committed to print. You know, imagine, no, yeah, imagine yeah. if every single conversation you had to break up with someone was just put in some archive somewhere. You'd you could go to the library sensitive. of breakup conversations, just have a little read. I mean, that <laughs> be would great be stuff, such a great Tips. library, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah. Nowadays, of course, people just don't reply. They just, you know, they just disappear into the ether. <laughs> I mean, these guys would be really disappointed in the way society has gone. I quite like the idea of them being in a letter. Uh, not just because it's immortalized throughout history, but because there's something uh, that's uninterrupted about you being able to express yourself in such a pure form yeah, without yeah. it being a conversation. Exactly. With it just, this is my piece. There's yeah. a finality you know? about it. Yeah. It's in, in your handwriting, so it's more considered rather than More just, considered, exactly. Yeah. You've got yeah. the time to sort of think and contemplate how you want to yeah. phrase it and articulate it. Yeah, it's poetry in many ways. Yeah. Mm. And uh, I, I wanna, we're going to throw this out there. We've got quite a few to get through, and I'm already late. But uh, we're going to ask who wrote it best, which is the most patronising, most condescending, most sensitively worded as well. Mm. There are some nice ones as well. We're going to start with a, perhaps a not-so-nice one. Uh, this is Agnes von Kurowski. To Ernest Hemingway. Hmm. Okay. So the inspiration for the romance in Ernest Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms was his own affair with Agnes, who was a 26-year-old Red Cross nurse that he met while recovering from an injury during World War I. Now, a few months after Hemingway, he was only 19 years old at the time, he returned to the US to find a place for them to live together. He received a letter in which Von Kurowski not only broke up with him, but also said that the time apart had given her the distance she needed to realise that she'd probably never been in love with him in the first place, <laughs> which is really That's harsh. Brutal. It's kind of like you're already leaving the person. Do you need to tell them? Yeah. Do you exactly. need to be that honest to tell them? Yeah. You know what? Actually, it was never real to start with. <sighs> right. So I want you guys to come up with a it's not you, it's me rating okay. um, and a condescension rating for this particular note. She wrote, Agnes wrote to Ernest, I know that I'm still very fond of you, but it is more as a mother than as a sweetheart. It's all right to say I'm a kid, but I'm not, and I'm getting less and less every day. I tried hard to make you understand a bit of what I was thinking on that trip from Padua to Milan, but you acted like a spoiled child, and I couldn't keep on hurting you. Now I only have the courage because I'm far away. Then to add insult to injury, she told him that she'd soon be marrying someone else, and I hope and pray that after you have thought things out, you'll be able to forgive me and start a wonderful career and show what a man you really are. I mean, that is just dripping with the kind of patronising tone that only women are capable of. Oh, I'm sorry. They really are. Okay. Only women can be patronising. Yeah, in that particular way. Yes. <laughs> Show them what a man you really are. I mean, that talk about a compliment dressed in a wolf in dressed in sheep's clothing there. In other words, you're a pathetic child. Yeah. But somewhere in there, there may be some crumb of a man that might come out now that I've released you. <laughs> You disgust me. 
That's basically what it says. And she set that up as well. She said you acted like a spoiled child. Yeah. <laughs> so she set that it's up early It's just dripping on. with yeah. patronising. I mean, oh. If you're earnest, I mean, you are seething with that. Yeah. You're getting on the typewriter and you're bashing away <laughs> within a few seconds. I mean, are we not going to drill down on the bit where she says she's fond of him, but more yeah. as a mother than as a sweetheart? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I again, mean, that's, wow. that's, it doesn't get worse than that. No, it really doesn't, does it? Yeah, yeah. I can't even imagine having romantic feelings yeah. for you, but I just sort of take care of you as if you are my spoiled child. <laughs> it's wow. just... The- these are, this is brilliant. It's got to be one of the most cutting things you can say to somebody. <laughs> yeah, it's it's beautifully written actually yeah, in a is. weird kind of way. You got to you got to take your hat off to it. I mean, there's no comeback there from Ernest. <laughs> no, uh, no. Even I mean, he is. Talk about being put in your box. Yeah. That man is just. Oh, you'd be writing that just going. Oh God. You know, he's looking for a marital home for them. Quivering. He's gone over to the US to find a place to live and he receives that in the post. Oh, that's brutal. I mean, I'd rather... 19 years old, that's going to just scar you yeah, for life. It really yeah. is. But we've got loads more uh, where these came from. Can we, before we move on to the next one, get to some of the text line, yes. text messages that have been coming in on the text lines? Because of course, you went on a bit of a, a rant to say that only women can be patronizing in a certain sort of way when it comes to a breakup. Sanjay said, agree with Rob. Dev said, "True, Rob. Only a woman can." <laughs> can, we, can we can we clarify though? And you agree with me, Son, in a specific way? Uh, no, what I agree with you on is that there's a little bit of a difference. I think if we're stereotyping, which of course everybody's an individual, but if of we're going to make stereotypes, yeah. I think that letter that you wrote us, which was directed at Ernest Hemingway, was quite you know, willing to, you know, drag a person down and tell him exactly why he wasn't up to muster. Whereas I think more often men will be a bit more callous and dismissive in a breakup, kind mm. of like, I'm done, bye. Yeah. As opposed to going into the details of, of why. Yeah, they won't, they won't really, they won't bathe in the, the nitty gritty. The gritty. You know, yeah. the, the, yeah. They, they yeah. won't really yeah. enter into the psychoanalysis of it all. Yeah, yeah. You and again, I mean? these are sweeping generalizations. They are yeah, sweeping generalizations, but, but um, they're fun to make. Of course. And uh, Nicholas has just said, wow, raw nerve, Rob. Although she does sound like a bit much. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all, Nicholas. We move on, though. Marlon Brando and the brilliantly named Solange Padel. Okay. Mm. Uh, she was a French cabaret dancer. She met Marlon Brando backstage after a 1947 Broadway performance of A Streetcar Named Desire. Of course, Brando played the lead role of Stanley Kowalski in that. And they struck up a relationship. Brando ended it in the late 1940s via a letter written in pencil, and there were a couple of spelling errors in there from Marlon. Um, so what did the Godfather have to say? Well, he said, In order that you won't think me a complete bore, I am writing you this letter to explain that because of an erratic, flighty, fly-by-night temperament, I wish not to humiliate and degrade your sentiments by seeing you only at my mood's convenience. Whoa. That's pretty patronising in its own Very way. Very patronising. Yeah. To be fair, it gets better. He says, Please accept this letter with an open heart, as it is written with forthright sincerity. I'm sorry I could not have tried harder to be less self-indulgent and therewith a little more compatible. My intuitions were flawlessly scrupulous, but my emotions, unfortunately, unstable. I will remember you with fondness, regard and appreciation. When we meet in France, perhaps in October, I trust my behaviour will be a trifle more adult. Oh, wow. I, I, was uh, quite, I quite like that. You, I, you know, I don't know what to make of that. In that that's, that's a big. That's got a massive dose of it's not you, it's me. Yeah. I mean, that's ex- that's entirely what that is. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, that it's not you, it's me. As we've said, it can be a, quite a patronizing mes- message, anyways, to start with. Yeah. Mm. True. True. Good point. He signed it off with warmth, mm. uh, and uh, she wanted. He also asked to Padel to pass along his kind acknowledgments to her mother if she'll accept them. So it, he's a little bit trying to just it's retain a bit clumsy. The, well, clumsy, but trying to retain a little bit of favour, dangling October there as a the door might not be fully closed. If I'm if I'm more mm. adult in October, then maybe there's a chance for us. Mm. Uh, bad bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> this one is brutal. This next one. Um, this is Jackie Kennedy to a guy called R. Beverly Corbin Jr. She had so, a type, didn't she? She really did. She yeah, did. she she liked she, she really did. <laughs> She liked an ambitious fella that was probably moving in certain circles, it's fair to say. Anyone who had the junior to their name. Yeah, or the third. Yeah. Um, So she was in her teenage years, it was the mid-1940s. She was then Jackie Bouvier. Mm. She was dating a Harvard University student named Beverly Corbin Jr. 
and uh, she would write letters to him addressed to Dearest Bev and Buddy Darling. Um, she shed light on her feelings about boarding school and then ultimately she shed light on her feelings about Bev himself, whom she came to realise she didn't actually love. And this, I'm, I think this is meant to be nice, but it is absolutely brutal in, in a kind of way. Because she wrote in January of 1947... I've always thought of being in love as being willing to do anything for the other person. Starve to buy them bread, not mind living in Siberia with them. And I've always thought that every minute away from them would be hell. So looking at it that way, I guess I'm not in love with you. <laughs> I mean, what a punchline. That is a punchline. It's just... That is amazing. I think that's my favourite line so far that you've read. Yeah. It's just want to talk about a, a punch to the gut. Like if you're if you're reading that, by the way, the first two sentences, you're like, oh, what's she going to be? Oh, yeah. she's making a declaration here. It's yeah. my lucky day. Yeah, let's you know, move to Siberia. <laughs> she, she's kind of a reverse sort of. Yeah, she, she's willing to do anything. Yeah. No, yeah. she's oh. not. <laughs> like, she's listing all the things that being in love with someone is actually. Wow, just oh, say I'm dear. not in love with you. That's It's enough. I also think those things, starve to buy them bread and not mind living in si- Siberia with them. And I've always thought every minute away from yeah. them would be hell. I mean, yeah. so those are some also, real Also, I mean, if you are with someone who, who suggests moving to Siberia randomly, you know, <laughs> even if you are in love with them, it's probably yeah. not. Look, it depends what they're up to. If they've, got, if they've bagged themselves a great job, then maybe go with them. But... <laughs> Uh, anyway, she kept up correspondence with him after that. Oh, the relationship wow. fizzled out and um, she sort of quashed. He wanted to rekindle it. She didn't. She said, what I hope for you is for the same thing to happen as quickly and as surely as it did with me. It will be, it will be when she least expect it, she wrote to him. This is after she got engaged to someone who she then broke off with to tie the knot with JFK <laughs> in 1953. So she was climbing... The social ladder there, for sure. Yeah, I think oh, that's the over the fence. And dear old Bev just didn't quite cut the mustard. Mm. Um, right, this one's good. This one is Mary Wollstonecraft to Gilbert Imlay. The names in this list are brilliant, Rob. They really are, aren't they? Um, this is just a brilliant... I just think this is beautifully written. And it makes me actually think that we need to go back to this. You know... Oh, yeah. The WhatsApp language... WhatsApp has really killed our our kind of propensity to to really get down and write something really poetic yeah because you know mary would just not have she'd have struggled with what's whatsapp i think <laughs> she was married to william godwin and um they gave birth well she gave birth to the future frankenstein author mary shelley All right. um but before that she had a daughter with a guy called gilbert imlay uh, who was an american author and they never married. Um, Imlay was traveling. He apparently had loads of affairs. He treated her very poorly. He had killed their relationship. And in March 1796, she sent her former squeeze what could aptly be described as an 18th century version of a delete this number message. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is great. She says, you must do as you please with respect to the child. I could wish that it might be done soon, that my name be no more mentioned to you. It is now finished. Convinced that you have neither regard nor friendship, I disdain to utter a reproach, though I have had reason to think that the forbearance talked of has not been very delicate. It is of, however, no consequence. I am glad you are satisfied with your own conduct, she said. I now solemnly assure you that this is an eternal farewell. That is beautiful. No wonder she's a mother to Mary Shelley. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The apple didn't fall far no, from the tree yeah, there, did exactly. it? Yeah, exactly. Very eloquent. That was a true calling out of a complete narcissist is what that yeah. is. Yeah. Right? And, and, and I that's, think that's it. You've been gaslighting me and now I can see it. And here's your eternal farewell. What a <laughs> yes. last line. Exactly. Yeah, it's great that, isn't it? I, I think that's my favourite. That's uh, the best one for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, still, I still quite enjoy the Jackie Kennedy sort of <laughs> the harshness of that put down. I want to get to uh, some one that's really fueled with a bit more passion, mm. and this is Frida Kahlo uh, to Diego Rivera, and they they had a, a real on-off relationship. Famously tumultuous. Famously tumultuous. Um, Frida Kahlo in 1953, she was lying in hospital. She was trying to finish a letter before doctors amputated her uh, leg, which had become gangrenous. She was writing to her husband, Diego Rivera, 
who had actually conducted affairs with her own sister wow. throughout their relationship and various other women as well. Um, Callow was no uh, angel in this particular relationship. I think she had also conducted her own affairs, but she wrote nonetheless. Um, I'm going to need the bleep machine here. Uh, uh, got it. Okay. I know Wayne's a fan of your bleep machine. We've got it. Don't worry, Wayne. We've got to get tasty. This is great. This is great. She said, "Let's not fool ourselves, Diego. I gave you everything that is humanly possible to offer, and we both know that. But still, how the hell do you manage to seduce so many women when you're such an ugly son of a?" I'm writing to let you know I'm releasing you, which is a great word. She says she goes on to say. I'm amputating you. Wow. I mean, wow. we just we just don't write it like they used to, do yeah. we? No. Imagine writing a just WhatsApp so to visceral, someone. Just right? I'm amputating yeah. you. Uh, be happy. That should come back. That should become sort yeah. of a whatever the next Gen Z or Gen Alpha kind mm. of term. Gonna amputate. I agree. It's, these things always move full circle, don't they? Mm. She says, "Be happy and never seek me again." I don't want to hear from you. I don't want you to hear from me. If there is anything I'd enjoy before I die. It'd be not having to see your f***ing horrible face wandering around my garden. <laughs> the fact that Rob was live bleeping that really made me yeah. nervous. Yeah. That put me on edge. Relax now, he's through yeah, it. He's done. She, she contradicted herself, though, by signing off goodbye from somebody who is crazy and vehemently in love with you. <laughs> oh, uh, wow. Suffice to say that that was not a final goodbye. Uh, they kept oh, very much in touch wasn't. after her operation. Yeah. So uh, I don't know what came of that but uh, that was not quite the finality that some of the other breakup letters had achieved but uh, your favourite zone? You know I'm still giving it to Jackie Kennedy Yeah I think that's my favourite what about you? Uh, yeah I mean I quite like Mary mm. Mary just shooting from the hip in yeah. a in a really kind of there was there was a, that, it didn't have the, the sort of patronising disdain of some of the others yeah. but it, it had a real nice poetic finality to yeah. it yeah that beautiful eloquence to that so one so there you have you, it Rog? Um, Agnes was good in the contradiction of you're a child now go be a man get, get out of my life mm. I like that I yeah. like that I like that structure it's fair to say we've we've definitely lost the art oh, of breaking up with someone in a uh, sort of poetic and very artful way yeah um, you know nowadays it's just kind of it's over. <laughs> it's just a block. Yeah, it's a block. There's no, isn't there's it? no yeah. message. It's just a. It's a block. You can't reach me anymore. Oh. We're done. The Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 